Hello and welcome to the Leading Communities Podcast, brought to you by Aspire for You CIC, Ideal Directions Marketing and hosted by That's All Media CIC. This podcast has been put together to help community leaders learn from proven leaders from proven organisations. My name's Marianne Delaney and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be talking sports and mental health. And joining me in the studio, we have sports psychologist Jennifer Cummings and Olympian athlete Thomas Bosworth. Welcome, everyone. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Good, good. Good to meet you, Tom. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. No problem. What I'm going to do is ask you to tell us a bit about yourself. So, Jennifer, do you want to go first? Yeah, happy to. So I'm um, a reader at the University of Birmingham and I'm also a chartered sport and exercise psychologist. And uh, I've been over here in the UK for the last ooh, 17 years. And if you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from here. I'm Canadian, where I got my first taste of sport as first a, a figure skater and then coach. Nice, nice. That's a my mind's just going through all of that information, <laughs> so I'm sure more will come out as we go along. Um, and yourself, Tom? Um, I'm an Olympic athlete. Uh, I've got multiple world and uh, British record records, um, Commonwealth Games silver medalist. Uh, I was Team GB's first track and field uh, out, publicly out athlete. Um, and yeah, that's about it. I live and train in Leeds and uh, currently living in Brisbane, training under the sun. Nice, yeah. So we've got um, Tom joining us via phone and um, he's in sunny Australia as we speak, which is nice for him. <laughs> so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump into um, the first question so that we can get to grips with, you know, um, helping our audiences with accessing more information from yourselves basically and um, the first question we've got is how do you get people caring about sport and what have you learned from trying to do so um does anybody want to go first with that sure happy to do that um i guess as a as a sports psychologist this is actually a really really important topic for us and it's not actually too hard to get people to care about sport at least initially because most often when you get involved with sport it's at a, at a young age and you do sports that you really enjoy, that you try out different ones and you start to work out which ones you maybe like better than others. And then you start to invest in that sport. But it's over time where people might start to kind of lose their, their enjoyment as they move up the levels, move up the ranks. As sport becomes more competitive, there's different types of stresses and pressures. And it's not uncommon for an athlete to sort of lose that kind of reason why they did their sport in the first place, that that love for it, um, that interest, that curiosity, that intrinsic motivation, as we as we call it as psychologists. And so actually what we end up doing is then working with athletes to help them maybe rediscover the love for, for their sport. And that's one of the reasons why an athlete might come to see a sports psychologist. Right, okay. So is it more about as you say, in growing up, but if, if it's an athlete mm -hmm. and they're already in that, and Tom, you might have something more to say about this. Um, so it's a good little, actually good dynamics of what we've got here, two flip sides of the coin. Um, is it more in, in a professional sense, just trying to gauge in a professional sense mm -hmm. where the mentality might dip a bit? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, it really, it really does depend 
depend on the athlete and their circumstances. But we know that there's a lot about about sport that um, can maybe add stresses, um, pressures where an athlete might be focusing on doing it for for other reasons, such as um, you know winning, um, achieving funding, etc. And these are all really important reasons why people do sport at very high levels, but it can sometimes take away from that sort of intrinsic love for it. The mm. kind of natural reasons that you have when you were a kid, when you first started kicking a ball around the playground yeah. or, you know, maybe doing your first gymnastics class, your first swim class. And, um, and so one of the things that we do as sports psychologists is work with you know, coaches and other sport officials to help ensure that they create an environment that really helps to balance out um, athletes performing at their their very best and achieving their potential, but also at the same time still enjoying it, maintaining their their well being. Because we know that when you start to lose the, lose the, the kind of love of your sport, then it's harder to commit to it. It's harder to you know put in that you know day to day practice that athletes have to do in order to stay at the top. And uh, as a result, you know, one of the reasons why an athlete might drop out of their sport is that they've, they've lost that, that love for it. Okay, so it's maintaining and pushing to, you know, different levels to ensure you can maintain it and still keep that, that love for it, as you were saying. That, yeah. That's correct. And it's normal for it to kind of dip mm. over time and come up again and depending on where you're at and what's going on. And, and I guess that it's when, when it starts to become an issue is when you start to, to lose that love of your sport to, to the point where you just, you don't remember why you do it anymore. Yeah. And um, that's when you, your motivation has really shifted in a way where that might be starting to damage your, your well-being, for example. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. So, Tom, what are your thoughts on that? I think um, there's probably, well, there's two parts to that. And um, with w covering the athlete to start with, uh, like, obviously, you know, very few people are fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to become, you know, successful athletes. Uh, many may start off with those ambitions and dreams and along the way, for one reason or another, it, it doesn't work out. But um, I think at their highest level, uh, you need so many people and so many decisions to go your way. It can be very difficult when they don't. And it can be very difficult as an individual who is ultimately giving their all for absolutely no security in terms of income in terms of success of winning medals or winning games winning matches um it's very difficult when the things that when you're doing everything right or you think you are and others perhaps don't believe in you or aren't making the right uh, aren't making the decisions in your favor or you know whether that's lottery funding for athletes or getting picked in uh, in the first team for for a football club it's um you know, often we lose we lose people from from elite sport because getting getting there is almost the hardest bit. And then when you do get there, you get a lot of the support. Um, in my case, it took me six years full time um, working part time. Uh, I guess I wasn't full time then. <laughs> part time working part time uh, sport to reach the top. And I took a number of hits where, you know, I didn't receive funding. I didn't get selected for uh, championships. And um, a lot of people, I imagine, can easily take that as as a negative and let it and let it beat them and ultimately not go on to succeed. I ensured that 
it drove me on and and ultimately became an Olympian and and achieved more than I could ever ever dream of. But then there's Joe Public, who I think maybe don't have the best relationship with sport at at a school or, or growing up. You know, not everybody is kicking a ball around. Not everybody is enjoying that because I feel like perhaps in our country as well we are very football, maybe a bit of rugby orientated uh, i didn't do any athletics in sport i didn't know there were so many different sports out there um i think that's something that could really change sport fitness health and ultimately uh, mental health if um if schools and connection to to society kind of opened up and, and created better links so then exercise doesn't have to be about football or perhaps going for a run on a cold evening which most people don't want to do when they come in from work. So I think the detachment from sport can come at a very early stage. Mm, okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, um, it links quite nicely onto our next question, actually, uh, which goes into what can communities learn from sports people or sports teams when overcoming barriers to success? Yeah, I mean, I think um, for me personally, like I joined an athletics club when I was 12 because my sister was at the same athletics club, but I had a motivation to keep fit, make friends, and and my parents wanted me to do some exercise, basically, and and that's how they came came about, and and there happened to be links to my school as well through that athletics club, but it just happened to happen that way, and and I never dreamt, oh, I didn't even dream, I never even considered sport as a as an option of a career or, or a future. And I wasn't very good either, but I did it for enjoyment. And, and I think that's a huge, huge uh, kind of lesson for anybody is whether it's coaches, parents or the child or person themselves. You know, you don't have to be any good at it straight away. You don't have to, if as long as you're enjoying it and, and that sort of thing. And I think where schools perhaps might refer a, child, a really good footballer onto a, perhaps an academy or a great runner onto or let's find the local athletics club those links should should naturally exist anyway because ultimately it gives kids the options to try everything and anything and um, I think it only benefits the clubs uh, because ultimately you're probably going to end up with more participants and it's only going to benefit the students or the young people uh, or or who knows who it will lead to ultimately uh, benefiting their, their mental and physical health Um society is far too segregated um i think sport you know like that when when you're just stuck with an hour of pe or so many hours well barely any hours enough hours in school this is a perfect way to to help encourage kids into um sport giving them loads of different opportunities meeting loads of new people without it Im impacting on on the curriculum i guess yeah do you know, it's, wow, I, I'm always having a conversation with people about how PE, um, I know it's physical education, but actually it should be rebranded <laughs> to something like health and nutrition because those kind of things work hand in hand, don't they? And I know that sports... Yeah, I agree. Like ...physical exercise-wise, um, you know, the benefits of how that can help you mentally as well um, is just phenomenal. But it's, it's, as you say, the whole hour 
oh, I don't feel is enough. But that's me. So I'm going to ask Jennifer <laughs> what, what you think. Sure. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what Tom's saying is, is really, really important because how people first experience sports activity can actually set the stage for what they think about it and how they, how they then persist with it over, over years to come. So your first introduction most for most young people will be in school. And um, there's been, I think, a real change in tide in schools in the last couple of years with some introductions of programs like the Daily Mile and Marathon Kids, where they're taking what was for, you know, formal physical education and then making it more about everyday physical activity. So with those programs, um, the, the teachers, the students all go out and do a short period of running every day in, in their uniforms. They don't have to get in clothes, change into PE kits or anything like that. And the idea being they just get out and be active and it's actually having really powerful effects on not only the young person's mental health, but also their ability to learn. So there's educational benefits too as well. So just a short bit of this activity every day can have a, a massive effect. But we're also starting to see schools being more um, experimental in the way kids learn. So a lot more active learning. So for example, my, my son's school just yesterday, they were learning how to do division, but they were doing it through an active way where they had, you know, their, their movement, um, gathering bean bags, working out how to separate them. And so it takes what we think is physical activity, but then you puts it into everyday life. And that is a lot easier to become active when, when we do that. Um, but, you know, kind of coming back to the question about like, what can we, can we learn from athletes and the, you know, the, the barriers that they, they overcome in how they succeed. I think there's, there's so much we can learn from. So in our everyday life, we experience so many kind of stresses, everyday hassles that affect us. And one of the things that we learn from athletes is that they, they put themselves in situations every day where they're, where they're testing this, that they're practicing how to cope and respond to stressful situations. And what that tells us is that these are actually skills. These are skills that we can, we can learn. Um, we don't, we're not born with them. And over, over our childhood, our adolescence and to adulthood, these are skills that we have to keep practicing because like any physical skill, when we don't, when we don't use them, we lose them. And so how we respond to stress, how we manage our thoughts and our feelings in response to that are all things we, we can practice. And so by, for example, trying to avoid stress, we don't get those opportunities to be resilient in the face of it. And I think that's a really important lesson that, that athletes do teach us each and every day. Yeah. Okay. So um, when it comes to communities and potentially, you know, like community organizations working on helping people you know, um, interact with sports so that, you know, they might be able to have the opportunity that you've had, Tom, and become aware of everything that's going on. We've talked a lot about schools, but what can community organisations do? I'll go with Jennifer, if that's all right. So there's lots of different ways that communities interact with sport. Um, so, for example, there's some, some great community organizations here in Birmingham that use sport as a vehicle for positive development. And um, what that does is help young people who might be not in education, work or training at the moment. Maybe they face different types of disadvantages, but through sport, have the opportunity to develop their self-esteem, the belief in themselves, learn how to set goals, achieve them, you know, teamwork with others. And a lot of these same skills are actually very transferable to the, to the workplace. And so sport's a great way 
to help young people to practice these things, build confidence in them, and then be able to then use them maybe when they go out and do that job interview. And um, so that's you know a really great way that sports being used. And we've, we've also used it in a slightly different way. So we're currently working with uh, an organization here in Birmingham called St. Basil's. And this is a, a housing service for, for young people who are experiencing homelessness or at risk for homelessness. And uh, they came across some of the work that we were doing with the, like a local Premier League football academy. And uh, they were really interested in the mental skills training that we were doing with, with the players and uh, asked whether that same type of mental skills work could also be applicable to their, to their young people. And of course, you know, from based on what we said, these mental skills are really for, for anyone. And so we've worked with them over the last six years to develop a, a mental skills training program, taking the lessons from sport, but then sort of adapting it to, to their, their context and helping young people to kind of recognize and use their strengths to develop these mental skills in terms of how you manage your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors, you know, recognizing how all these things interact with each other in order to help them achieve their, their goals, their, their aspirations, and, you know, most importantly, be able to live, you know, more fulfilling lives where they can be independent, they can be in education, they can be in work, they can be in training. And what it comes down to is a lot of the same mental skills athletes are also using in order to achieve their goals, whether it's an Olympic medal, um, being world champion, being the fastest in the world. You know, this is the same mental skills that underpin all of this. I think that's really interesting because um, listening to Jennifer there, is, it, it's quite... I don't, I don't know the right word to describe it. However, I think of many of my teammates and many across all sports, people I know who are super talented and work really hard and 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 don't achieve perhaps what they would hope and, and or feel that some of their successes are actually failures. And we have a saying, a lot of people in sports say, you know, on race day, it's about 90% mentality, 10% physical effort because ultimately you've done all the training and you've done all the hard work but make one mistake on race day and it's all it's all gone yeah, all of that is irrelevant um and i think it's i think a lot of people believe that athletes you know are the are are very in control and uh, know exactly what they're doing when I think it's quite nice also for people to see and, and understand that, you know, making mistakes, uh, getting nervous, um, you know, uh, dealing with a situation incorrectly is something athletes do as well as, as kids or, or anybody. And um, translating that over and then translating that about how to deal with that so you're taking it away with a positive, which is what successful athletes manage to do is a huge asset to anybody. And I think it's, um, it, it, I, I think that's a, a key difference about translating um, kind of what athletes do to, to everybody else is athletes don't always make the right decisions and they certainly don't make, uh, and they certainly do make plenty of mistakes, but it's how then they manage those mistakes and those, and those decisions, which ultimately probably make them, the, the ones making the finals, the ones winning medals, the one breaking records, rather than the ones who, you know, the also-rans and, and, and so on. And it really is that small, small um, kind of 
decision, put that into everyday life. And ultimately that can come down to making a decision whether you've taken a knockback from a job interview and whether you go for the next one or whether you'd bother turning out for training or to go for that run or go along to the to the next match because the last one didn't go well. And uh, I think that that asset can be transferred so, so well. Um, I've probably gone off on a bit of a tangent then, but it was just really interesting <laughs> listening there. And um, and from where I'm sat, I, I see athletes are, are just, as, just as vulnerable as everybody else. And, and that's actually really, really important for people to understand because athletes are, and are just as vulnerable to mental health problems as, as everyone else. But what is maybe different is that athletes may have more opportunities to practice their skills at being resilient. So you know, the examples that you just gave are, are absolutely bang on in terms of the types of things that we try to get across to, to young people in terms of you know, making mistakes, coming back from setbacks and learning how to maybe reframe these as opportunities to, to learn from them. And we know the most successful athletes are able to draw, draw those lessons. And it doesn't mean that they don't ever make mistakes, as, as you know, you really, really well said, but actually they, they take them and use them in ways that then motivate them further, um, be able to then realize something about themselves and their personal strengths and how they can apply them to those sorts of difficult situations. And so I, I do really think those skills at being resilient, that there's so many examples that we can learn from, from, from sport, but it isn't just about presenting it as this kind of this um, thing where athletes become successful and uh, it's kind of a simple pathway to getting there, but actually the real lessons are from that is never one smooth pathway to the top. And in fact, mm. there's so many bumps and turns and, dips and, and lows and highs. And, and actually that, that's what really equips you with the mental skills to succeed. Yeah. Well, I, from you saying that, I always think of the conversations that I have about business and getting, you know, like getting yourself into business or, you know, having a new job and, or, you know, going for something that you're passionate about. Um, no one celebrates the failures because they're, they're, they're classed as failures, aren't they? Like there's not, a, as you say, like a clear road to success. And actually, Tom, what you've done, you did when you spoke, was actually broke down that image that I have of athletes, actually, is that, you know, they're, they're controlled, they know what they're doing. And I don't see the training. I don't see the hard work that goes into it. So it must be really difficult, you know, when it's the competitive side of it, as you say, on a day, you can't it's all it all depends so how do you kind of cope with the aftermath of you know if of not winning particularly um you have to so i have a technique where i go into many races um with uh, outcome goals ultimately are ones i'd be proud of regardless of what the outcome the dream goal winning gold uh, the other one would be you know um uh, in my position finishing a top eight in the world or whatever uh, and one that i'd be a little bit disappointed with but it's still a good day and um and that way ultimately you take something from it and you're able to start off on a pos positive foot um but it's still incredibly uh, demoralizing. It's 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 failure all on you is what, ultimately how you feel, you know. And that can be everything from failing the exam if you prepared as well as you could and did all your all your um, uh, research and everything and and studied hard. 
it's it's the same it's the same outcome and uh, or it's the same feelings with the outcome of failure um where really if you can if you can set off on a on a on a foot where where there is positives regardless of the outcome then you can analyze it far more successfully than if you have one goal one ambition and that's it be all and end all um i think many athletes fail there uh, because they set themselves up for failure because you can't win every time one person can win one person that's it uh, and so you have to accept what is deemed failure but that's the wrong word you know for, uh, i'll give you a prime example i went to the olympic games in 2016 i was ranked 27th i was over the moon just to be at the olympics and i finished sixth some people turn around and say well you didn't win a medal but for me, uh, I set a British record and I finished 21 places higher than my world ranking put me at. And that was a huge success. So no matter what, for me, I went in having already succeeded, even though on paper I wasn't number one. And so many people set themselves up for failure in life by just having such great ambitions, but nothing in between, nothing to get them there. Yeah, I think we need a new word for failure <laughs> that's empowering. Yeah, definitely. I was hesitant to actually say it when I was asking you the question because I realised straight away, oh, yeah, it's not it's not a good word. Um, okay, so that's that kind of, again, leads us on to the, the next question, with which I've, I've, I feel like we have discussed, but um, how does or can mind management make a difference? Um, I'll go with you, South, Jen. Sure. Um I think from what we've been talking about, it, it, it's hopefully pretty pretty clear that actually it's it's really instrumental in terms of an athlete's success. That being able to manage not just their the way that they think, but also how they how they feel, because these things all interact. Um, your emotions affect your thoughts. Your thoughts affect how you behave. And once you start to understand how all these things are connected and how you can then manage them, is when you start to really be able to then. Um, perform effectively particularly in stress and stress and pressure and these are things that you really do have to learn that you do have to practice over time that's not something you can just take for granted that's going to show up on on race day uh, I often when I work with athletes we talk about the fact that um, under pressure you, we tend to fall back on our on our habits and so if you don't train the way that you want to compete so i.e in terms of your your mental mindset then it won't come under pressure as well. And so that's why we'd start to work early on. And uh, it always reminds me of this, it was a study done with uh, Olympic athletes way back in the 80s, where the Olympians talked about the fact that they pro probably reached their peak physical performance about three to four years prior to making it to those games. But the thing that held them back was that they hadn't started working on the mental side of their sport. And I say back in that era, it wasn't really well known what that meant and how to how to do that but over time we've got a much better understanding of what does distinguish between the best athletes from those who don't quite make it from a from a psychological perspective but we also have a much better understanding of how we can train that more effectively as well yeah yeah <laughs> again um, i can just run in through athletes of the 80s and 90s and yeah <laughs> getting get an understanding of that definitely what do you think tom uh, to be honest, I, don't, I, I can't, I can't put it much better myself. Um, uh, I said it earlier, you know, not, uh, on competition day, match day, you see it from the very best athletes in the world um, down to 
you know, playing a playing a basic game of football and you make a mistake, suddenly under pressure, you can perform very, very differently. However, you've trained for these situations and, and the the unknowns to come up, which is very hard to train for an unknown. But, uh, you know, you try and tackle every situation in training and, and, and in mental training, uh, then then, you know, you know what what your response needs to be. Uh, you know, if you don't prepare for that and if you just think it's going to be smooth sailing all the way and there's going to be no sort of, nothing, no sort of hurdles, um, then you're going to probably fall at the first one that comes your way. So we're talking about, obviously, again, thinking about um, helping communities learn from this information. Um, I know that yourself, Jennifer, you've worked with a lot of communities, as you said, St. Basil's. Um, how can you gather evidence and learn into it, you know, to provide information for future references and... Sure. I mean, I think that's where um, working closely with organisations, communities, where together we um, develop these sorts of programmes as well as to evaluate them so that we do have evidence that they, they work, so we understand why they work, for whom they work, so that when we start to bring them to sort of different settings, different organisations, we know how to, how to best do that. And one of the things that I've, that I've learned from working with St. Basil's is the power of evidence to help influence then um, those who provide funding for these types of things, mm -hmm. uh, governments who set policies around this. And so when they start to think about how they invest in, for example, young people, that they're investing in things that they know or work, that they can be confident that, that that's the case. And so although there's lots of organizations doing fantastic work in this area, um, they're not always able to evidence it. And so as a result, uh, maybe not don't always have the power of that sort of information in order to make others convince them yeah. that this is an effective way to help young people to to develop. So I, I do think there's a lot of power in being able to to evaluate. And it doesn't have to be overly complicated either. And there's lots of academics like myself who are really um, willing to work with organisations to, to help make that happen too. Okay, brilliant. Right then, well... That's um, very, very informative. Um, I've learned a lot, as I always do from these podcasts, to be honest. There's always, you know, I go home thinking a lot about what we've been talking about. I do know that we did a, a behaviour, um, health and behaviour podcast recently, and one of the outcomes of that was saying that it takes three months for people to get, you know, a habit to become, to form. So thinking about that from, you know, Joe Bloggs, who's walking down the street and thinks, maybe I need to do a bit more. And the, the mentality that we've discussed and the mindset about around that, it's always kind of knowing that it's not, it's not going to be something that comes overnight. It's a, it's a long road, really, isn't it? So very much about coping mechanisms and, and continuing to, to grow from that. Is that yeah. kind of right? From my perspective, a little goes a long way. And so when we start to do a little bit, each day in terms of managing our, our mindset that starts to build towards you know something greater down down the road but like any kind of new skill that uh, we don't tend to start at you know in terms of being fully formed we start yeah. with baby steps and we we add to it so one great way for someone to get started with sort of working on their their mental skills is maybe just to start thinking about what are the, the current ways that they they cope. So when things are tough, um, when they make mistakes or they're under pressure situations, what works for them already, these are strengths that they already have. Can they start to think about how they can use them in, in new and different ways? 
And just by practicing using one of your strengths every day will have a positive impact on your mental well-being. Tom, would you like to add anything to that? Have you got any advice or? Yeah, I, you know, what? I think um, society has set that mindset of oh, almost that exercise is something, you know, you've got to get into routine to do it. You've got to, um, it's almost got to be a chore. And I think if you find something you enjoy, regardless of what it is, whether that's everything from baking to, to driving, to listening to music, to, to exercising or playing a, doing a sport, then it, it will fit into a routine because you'll find a way because you enjoy it because ultimately you do things you enjoy. And I think for so long, the option is going out for a run when it's windy and cold, going to the gym or, or you know, the five-a-side football team is only for the lads uh, and you go into the pub afterwards. Uh, that is not what sport is at all. Um, and I think... You know, I think facilities and, and opportunities are getting better and getting uh, and getting um, more, much more. And I think what needs to be done is greater advertising and greater uh, showcasing of, of the local facilities and then encouraging what is pretty brave decision to go and try a new sport. And if you do or try anything new, if you do, you ultimately very quickly probably find something you enjoy very, very quickly. And I think we could genuinely transform society on so many levels um, uh, with that. But uh, it, it's that immediate thought that fitness is a short-term thing. You know, you do it because it's your wedding. You do it because you're going to go on holiday, you, you know, and then or you do it so then you can eat or drink or go on a night out. And ultimately, if you you can do both of those and live very healthily. It doesn't have to be... Um, food doesn't have to be uh, kind of an, a reward for that or, or vice versa and and that's what we need to change and um, I think it could be really exciting as to where we could where we could go with that. Brilliant well thank you for your advice there it's um, do what you love and build from there basically. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant well thanks ever so much for your time um, usually at the end of the uh, podcast, what we do is we ask if you're reading any books that you would like to, to share with our audiences at all. Jennifer? Yeah, well, actually, I was just um, listening to an audiobook on my way here because I had a, a bit of a 20 minute walk uh, to where we are recording this. And uh, I've been listening to the new uh, Jojo Myers book, The Giver of Stars. I think that's the name of it. I might have got that wrong, but it's absolutely wonderful. So I'm really engrossed with it right now. But one of my my favorite books to recommend to people is um, there's a there's a really lovely book that's just come out around digital minimalism. So it, for those who find themselves, you know, quite addicted to social media and wanting to have a bit of a break from it, there, uh, Cal Newport was the author and uh, he, he really makes a really convincing case about the benefits for your mental health in terms of taking, just maybe taking a break from, from the digital world once in a while and offers some really practical ways of doing it. So it's one that I, I often recommend. Nice, digital yeah. detox. We all need yeah, it, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And yourself, Tom? Well, I'm not the strongest reader at all and actually I probably haven't read a book since I was a, from cover to cover since I was about 17 so about 12 years but it's funny you're asking that question now because I've just finished the, a book that I read from cover to cover out here uh, called This Is Going to Hurt by a trainee nurse who well uh, a trainee doctor who wasn't who, who went 
through all their training and that's filled us in on all sorts of inc his incredible stories, uh, which gives you a huge, huge respect for um, um, uh, the NHS <laughs> as a whole. But uh, um, a bit more related to this is I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether I can swear, so I'm not going to, but the title is Everything is Effed. A book about hope <laughs> yeah. is the is the title. Everything is F. A book about hope by Mark Manson, oh. and I've only just finished it. But uh, sorry, I've only I'm only about I don't know fifty pages in, and already um, I'm I'm not sure I'm hooked. I'm intrigued. So uh, yeah, nice. it's okay. it's definitely I think worth worth picking up. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Well, I'm sure I'll um, get into some of those as well, because I always enjoyed that little little question at the end of our podcast and my Amazon, you know, audible thing, wish list just grows and grows and grows. Um, okay, so are there any social media links in case people want to follow you um, after this podcast on Twitter or LinkedIn or anything like that that you'd like to share with us, Tom? Uh, yeah, well, you can, you can get me on everything at Tom Bosworth um, or TomBosworth.com. Okay. And yourself, Jennifer? Yep, so myself, I'm at Dr. Jen Cumming and uh, website uh, jennifercumming.com. Okay. Brilliant. All right, then. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with Leading Communities podcast releases and updates, follow us at A4UCIC, at Ideal Directions, and at That's All Media.